0: way to do this. Let me show you a way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view, of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, July the 17th, 2012. And this is episode 943 of the Survival Podcast. We're creeping up. We're only a very, very short period of time. We're going to be only 50 episodes away from episode 1000. So make sure you're part of episode 1000. Now, how can you be part of episode 1000? You can pick up your phone and you can dial this number 866 691 5353. Again, 866. 691-5353, and you can leave a two- to three-minute message about how prepping the Survival Podcast, the TSP Forum, uh, anything to do with prepping and the show and the community around it has changed the way you look at life and what you're doing and how you've transformed from maybe a sheep or a grasshopper to an ant. Right? Or a sheep to a wolf or something like that. Whatever you want to tell about your story, just give your first name. You don't have to give away your location or anything if you want to, you know, stay anonymous. I understand that. If you want to get a good feeling about how to do this, listen to the one year anniversary show or listen to episode 550. They were both phenomenal. I think episode 1000 will be an even bigger deal. So, uh, consider checking, uh, or consider calling in to, uh, the Revolution 2.0 hotline to do that. And again, this is a different number from the Think Line. It's specifically set up just for this. And again, that number, 866-691-5353. 866-691-5353. I'll put links to, uh, the prior episodes we did like this in today's show notes to help you out. I also want to remind you guys, I will be speaking at the show of the Self Reliance Expo in Arlington, Texas, on uh, the 27th and 28th. On the 27th, I'm going to be on part of an expert council. I'm going to be taking growing your own food, producing your own food, permaculture, that type of thing, uh, with two other great people, Doc Bones and Southern Prepper One. We're going to be on an expert panel together for two hours, taking audience questions. Love to see you there. But on the Saturday, the 28th. That'll be the big day. That's the day I'm doing the keynote address first thing in the morning uh, at 9.30, from 9.30 to 10.30. The doors open at 9 a.m., but you, my audience members, can get in at 8.30, a half an hour early. We have a special meetup set up for you guys. You can meet me, other members of the audience, and people like Jackie Clay. Uh, from uh, from uh, Backwoods Home Magazine, Doc Bones, Nurse Amy, Marjorie Wildcraft, and some other really cool people are going to be there. So come on in early. Uh, there's a post I put out today. I'll put a link in today's show notes to it. You can register on Facebook to say that you're coming, and uh, come early and meet each other and get an opportunity to be in the door before everybody else, meet all these cool people, form your relationship Saturday morning. That way you guys can hang out and do stuff together and be able to locate each other. Before the whole place is full of thousands and thousands of people. And again, a special thank you to, uh, to Scott and Ron who who graciously allowed me to set that up for you guys. And this is just something I wanted to do to try to thank you guys for being such a cool audience and such great people. And I, I was, you know, what can I do? And I, I approached them with an idea of doing a meetup. And to be fair, Scott Valencia, man, he's the guy that put, put this together at a bigger level and got all these other people involved. And to me, it was just going to be us. Uh, but he got all these other people to be part of it, and I think that's awesome. So thanks, Scott, for that. All right, going on, before we get into today's show, which is going to be awesome, i got a guy named Tim Ammons on the line uh, from Olio Acres Farm. He's going to be with us in just a minute to talk to us about some really cool stuff. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. Listen, guys, I know that they're a sponsor, and I know that you think that Jack's obviously going to say something good about a sponsor, but you know me. You don't just get to be a sponsor. I've got people all the time I want to be a sponsor. Well, first of all, there's no room, and second of all, you have to go through this vetting process, and the listener council has to check you out, and I have to decide that I would spend my own money. It's it's not easy. So you know when I recommend silverandgoldshop.com. I'm doing it because they're a company I've done business with myself and continue to do business with and I know they always take care of the customer, but the other thing I just have to say to you right now, if you hold no gold and no silver at all, you know neither neither nor you 're really exposed to inflation you 're really exposed to economic collapse it 's very much the case that it's one of the few things you can really do to ensure your future as as basically an economic insurance policy. Now, I don't tell you stuff stuff like go cash in your IRA and buy all silver with it and go all in or whatever. I I don't do that. But I am telling you that it probably makes sense to get somewhere between 5 to 10% of your net wealth into silver and gold. And when I say 5%, I'm talking about all your wealth, not just your cash. So when you do, you know, you do a personal balance sheet, not the one that your accountant does for you, but the one you do for yourself where you're honest with yourself. You know, not how much your house is worth, but how much of your house you actually own, all that good stuff. What's the value of everything that you own, especially long-term assets, things that are going to be with you for more than five years. About five percent of that number should be represented by precious metal. Silverandgoldshop.com is a great place to uh to start on that path and add some cool stuff to your collections. check them out today. Next up today, shelfreliance.com. Notice I said shelf reliance, not self-reliance. I mean a shelf, like something you put things up onto. Now, the reason I say shelf reliance is because that's the name of the company. Now, why is that the name of the company? Because they specialize in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat through racks from small racks that can fit in your pantry or cupboard, ironically called the pantry and the cupboard in the consolidator line, to large racks like the 72, the Harvest 72, huge, giant rack, holds like a half a ton of food. Food goes in the top, comes out the bottom, automatically rotates, a lot like some of the stuff that is used in commercial vending environments at stores to automatically rotate the food, but it goes right in your own house. Uh, Ours is just an awesome system. We really, really love it, and I suggest you check them out. While you're there at their site, again, ShelfReliance.com, check out the Thrive brand of long-term food storage stuff. Man, I I like Mountain House. I really do. They're one of my favorite long-term food storage places, but when it comes to selection... And good tasting food, especially good tasting food that the kids will eat, you gotta check out the Thrive brand. I'm not saying get rid of your Mountain House, replace it with Thrive or don't buy. I'm just saying that, you know, that's one side to look at to add diversity and depth and good tasting stuff. Most of the stuff that you can get with the Thrive label on it, you would be happy to open up a can of it and eat it tonight, not just when times get tough. That allows you to have a lot more freedom with cooking with your preps and learning to cook with your preps, and I just think you should check them out today. Again, shelfreliance.com. Last but not least, want to remind you, you can join the member support brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Email before you join. Email me at jack at Podcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. I'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. And with that all wrapped up, let me go ahead and introduce our guest now. His name is Tim Ammons, and he runs a farm again called Oleo Acres. It's in Tennessee. It's a self-sustaining farm that teaches individuals what he calls the old-fashioned way of being green and he's here today to talk to us about self-sustaining living. He's got a lot of really cool stuff. He's been doing this a very long time. Uh, he does 100% uh, heirloom uh, seeds. 100% organic operation, not necessarily USDA organic, but probably beyond organic when you listen to him talk. He really specializes in sorghum. You're going to hear about uh, about five varieties of really cool sorghums that you can grow yourself, uh, how they make sorghum syrup, uh, and how they grow all other types of things in livestock on the farm, things that he teaches. And listen in, guys, that are dealing with the squash bug problem. Tim is going to tell you at some point during this interview how to get that problem to go away in a very effective, very easy, very simple way. And I think a lot of you, after you hear it, after dealing with these damn things for so long, are going to want to hug the man's neck if you ever get to meet him, just for telling you how to get rid of the squash bugs. Uh, so with that, hey, Tim, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Hey, can you tell people a little bit about Oleo Acres Farm? I mean, what what is Oleo Acres Farm and, and what what is it? What do you guys do out there? I mean, size of the farm, what, what kind of operation you got running, that type of thing? Uh,
0: well, Oleo Acres is a 20-acre uh, farm that uh, we teach sustainable agriculture and, uh, and permaculture. You know, the, our motto is going green the old-fashioned way, back before they uh, used to use chemical you know, pesticides and herbicides. We still farm in the same manner.
1: Yeah, I mean, green's like a big buzzword today, but not long ago, it was pretty much everything was green, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, the uh, the way the chemicals started off, of course, during Vietnam War, they started the uh, Agent Orange, and when they outlawed chemical warfare, the chemical companies had to start making you know a profit off of the chemicals they've already made, so they altered them and started making weed killers. And that's how the whole chemical age started coming coming about.
1: Yeah, I mean the uh, similarities between pesticides and, and, and nerve agents that were you know designed to be used on people originally in war are not not really uh, they're not very different from each other chemically.
0: Well, the uh, the uh, uh the foliant they use on uh, cotton is only one chemical away from being Agent Orange. <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, you learn something new every day and sometimes something you don't want to know. So, uh, how do you guys accomplish this on on your on your place?
0: Well, what we do the uh I I use well I have two two belts and horses and a mule which is the main source of my fertilizers that I use, but I I grow I create a good sustainable uh ecosystem on the farm that everything pretty much works together. How big is your farm? It's twenty acres, but I uh, only farm probably about twelve of it. Okay. The, uh, yeah, my father lives you know, back in the back, and I and I leave the back for him for his privacy.
1: Sure. And and um, with, with uh, you know what you're doing there, I guess you probably rely really, really heavily then on. Uh renewable practices like you know can you talk about how you handle things from a seed perspective are you you buying a big uh batch of seed every year or are you you hold it back and save it your own and how are you accomplishing that?
0: I grow a hundred percent heirlooms uh that way i can i can uh save the seed from year to year in fact, I'm the only uh producer that I know of that grows heirloom sorghums organically,
1: oh wow. Well, I, I actually wanted to talk to you about sorghum because I saw it on your website, and uh, mm-hmm. I saw there you had, I think it was a mule, uh, turning a sorghum press. Yes. Because uh, uh, how, how, you know, I've kind of looked at it. How? Uh, what's involved with making sorghum syrup? Because I think, you know, 100 years ago it was the main sweetener used in America, and today it's kind of a novelty item.
0: Yeah, well, it, uh, the difference between, well, a lot of people associate it with molasses, but molasses is the byproduct of the sugar cane industry, you know, which has virtually no food value. Whereas sorghum, uh, back in the Depression, they used to, the doctors used to prescribe sorghum as a multivitamin because it's so high in iron, potassium, calcium, and all the vitamins. You know, but, it, uh, but it's a great way to where you can give kids something sweet and the vitamins all at the same time.
1: Uh, I didn't know anything it, about the vitamins and minerals. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. But the way, uh, the way you process it is you squeeze the juice out, which the mule we use primarily for demonstration, uh, purposes now because, you know, I've got a tractor driven meal to do the vast majority of the work. But the, uh, once you get the squeeze, juice squeezed out, you cook the chlorophyll out of the juice, you know, which is the green, the green stuff in it. Okay. And, uh, you know, you cook it out and then you reduce it down. It, it takes 10 gallons of juice to make one gallon of syrup. Okay. Is what it does. And uh, and then it, there's just the a lot of uh, caramelizing it to the flavor you want and bottling it up.
1: So the longer we cook it, the darker. And the longer and warmer we cook it, the darker we get it.
0: Well, yeah. And the thicker it is. Now, snargle will not crystallize like sugar does. Okay. It, 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 stays, it stays liquid. So, I mean, you can cook it till it's just about hard, but it's still. it well, it's like glass. You know, glass is <laughs> like super-cooled liquid. Yeah, so you're but, imagining- I mean, you can-
1: you mentioned you're the only supplier of, uh, heirloom organic grown sorghum seeds. So what varieties are you growing then?
0: I've got, uh, well, the oldest known variety, uh, that was brought over on the slave ships. Uh, I've got it. It's called Black Amber. Uh, it's extremely strong, extremely robust. Uh, then I have, uh, one that's called Dale, uh, which is a mild flavor, mild flavored mm-hmm. sorghum. Uh, that's, you know, a lot of people love it. I've got a rocks orange, uh, which is another old heirloom. It, you know, it, the, that is actually a triple purpose, uh, sorghum there because you can eat the syrup, feed the stalks to the animals and use the seeds to grab for the flour. It's a, it's a non-gluten flour. And then that's rocks, that's rocks orange. Yeah. That's rocks orange. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then there's another one just just called orange. I love that one because it actually leaves a slight buttery flavor in your mouth uh, as an aftertaste. And I'm, trying, and I'm trying, yeah, yeah, and I'm getting a, uh, <laughs> i am getting I get my seed crop on uh, Goose Neck and Simon this year. So I've got seven different varieties that I'm going. I'm looking for more. Okay. But and do you, come, do you sell seed at all? Then I don't sell seed, but what I do is if somebody wants a starting of them, then I will give, I will give them a starting. Oh wow. You know, I bank, I bank them up. In fact, there was a, uh, a family in Ohio who contacted me who had a family mill that all they grew was the orange variety and they lost their crop this past year and they couldn't find the seed anywhere, but they heard about me and contacted me. So I gave them a start of the orange because they was about to shut down the uh, family mill because they couldn't get the variety they always grew. You know, I so. think
1: that's why we need more people growing stuff. I mean, even the person that's not going to grow, you know, a couple acres of sorghum and, and make it commercially, but I mean, anybody can grow a little bit of this and that in in, a, in even a backyard or a small farm and make sure that we're just preserving the seed stocks.
0: Exactly. And, you know, and with the uh, with the scare of the you know with the uh, GMOs now cross pollinating everything, the more heirlooms we have, the better.
1: Part of why I'm keen in on the sorghum is I'm growing a little bit myself this year. Probably I don't know 50 canes, and I'm growing something called Mennonite sorghum.
0: Oh, and, really? Yeah, That's and I phone think phone it's phone similar phone to, to your.
1: I think it's similar to your Rock's Orange because it's it was marketed specifically as a sorghum for both syrup and for grain.
0: Yeah, yeah. The uh, the grains. I mean, it's great for feeding the animals, but uh, it's just like there's only a couple that make suitable flour
1: okay
0: you know you know they're they're really high uh high oil content in them you know i I guess the uh, the raw Arm doesn't have as much oil as the rest of them, so it grinds better
1: cool well i'll see how it works out for me i've never grown sorghum before but uh you know and i'm just i'm actually about to move to an eight acre uh piece of agricultural land that we're relocating to but right now i'm only uh, managing about a half of an acre and i just wanted to Get some experience with it before we moved, and it's it's doing really really well. And uh, as long as I can keep the deer away from it, I'll be all right.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and I tell you, one uh, most sorghums, The one thing about that black amber that I got,
1: yeah, I got,
0: I got. I primarily started off with it. I spent three years searching for that seed, but I started off with it because if a drought hits, unlike other sorghums that die back. This will all this will actually go into a dormancy, and then when the rain comes back, mm-hmm. it'll take off and start growing again. Wow! So it also makes for a good secondary hay crop in pasture land.
1: That's that's, and I think the more resiliency that we can uh, build into our crops, the better off we all are. Um, on that note, is there certain things you've been doing to deal with pests? You know, because if you're if you're doing everything old school, then we're not spraying it with any kind of chemicals. Uh, and a lot of times we can build a balanced system and things will work out, but then there's sometimes these acute issues. Do you have anything you've had to deal with and maybe some ways you've been able to do it naturally?
0: Yeah. Well, i, I practice a lot of time planning, uh, such as corn. Uh, if you can get your corn in, in the ground before April the 15th, it's actually up and matured before the uh, earworms can get in. So you don't okay. have to worry about spraying for your earworms. The, uh... Uh, one of the main pests people deal with is the uh, squash bugs. Mm-hmm. You know the, the squash beetles. Well, catnip actually repels the squash bugs. So I grow I grow a big patch of catnip, and when it starts when it gets ready to start blooming, that's when the squash bugs come out. I cut my catnip and I just put it all around in, inside my squash, and it repels all the squash bugs.
1: You know I'm gonna tell you something. Uh, this is something my audience has been dealing a lot with: is squash bugs. Uh, there's yep. about forty thousand people probably want to hug your neck for that tip.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's something that uh, I've just recently found out in the past couple of years. Because I mean, I've been constantly battling. I've tried, you know, spraying with nicotine. I've tried, tried spraying with, you know, you know the the uh, that uh, well, heck, with well, the Captain Jack's bug bug be gone. Oh, the, the, spin the, of the, that the gang stuff. Gang.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, and I just really didn't have any luck with it. But I took me. Like I say, four or five, four or five sprigs of catnip and just wrapped around the base of my, my squash and they left.
1: Really? And you're talking about the, the bugs that get on the leaves right now, not the vine borers, or are you talking about the vine borers or both?
0: Well, you know, they look like stink bugs that bore down through the stump and killed your plant. That goes.
1: Yeah, I've had real bad problems with vine borers too down here in the south, and what I've done with them is I'll plant zucchini really early and get more of it than I need, and they invade that, and as soon as they, all end up in there. I just yank them out and compost them to death. And then I plant my winter squash.
0: Now, another thing you can do is, um, plant what's called a trap crop. Okay. You know, so if you want your garden area to be a hundred percent organic, you can plant the, uh, like I say whatever varieties you're growing, like your beans or beans or tomatoes on the outside perimeters of your garden. So they'll m- mature faster than your, your main garden. Well, the bugs will go to that. You can spray the bugs on those, keeping your main garden organic.
1: Makes sense. I did, one thing I tried this year is I planted a great big ring of buckwheat around my garden, so the deer Mm -hmm. come and they eat the buckwheat and stay out of the garden. I just fed them instead of trying to get rid of them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, for for some reason, I'm really not bothered by deer. Uh, you know, Where I'm at, I mean, they they go up and down the land all the time, but They really don't cause a whole lot of damage.
1: I think this year what's hurting us is that we've had a really bad drought and their forage is down because last year I had no issues. I had not an issue at all with the deer. And I think this year that's just, um, I'm down in Arkansas and the mountain's just dying. It's just turning brown. Um, we got rain this week. I made a joke. I said it was so long since I saw it, I had to look it up on the internet and figure out what it was.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the way we've been here. And, uh, in fact, the past two or three years, I've been experimenting with ways to conserve water or, you know, retain the water retention in the soil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one, one thing I do is, is August is, you know, well, once, once my sorghum comes out in August, September, I'll sow in turnips. And for some reason, I don't know if the turnip roots go down deep enough that they pull the moisture up and retains it, but the, uh, the ground actually retains the moisture longer. In the fields that you put the uh the turnips in.
1: Okay, so your sorghum's still standing, and you go in and harvest or well, plant the turnips. I,
0: once I once I cut my sorghum, once I oh, cut, cut down, yep. yeah, I'll go ahead and sow it in turnips as a cover crop. I sow it in turnips and clover because the clover is a green manure to help fertilize it. But the, sure. the turnips will, uh you know, they'll they'll come on up, and when I pick when I till those in, it actually stays wetter longer than any other place, you know, with, that I don't plant turnips.
1: It's probably something to do with the infiltration that it allows for the water to get. Um, yeah. I did that well, this year with mustard and, um, r- uh, oilseed radish that had very yeah. similar results.
0: Yeah. Well, the, uh, University of Nashville has been using, uh, radish as a soil, as a uh, water retention, you know, to bring the water up on the subsoil. Yep. Yeah. You know, they've been using radish. And since I shared with them about the turnips, they're going to start, the uh, experimenting with turnips.
1: You sound like you're pretty switched on. How how long have you been farming this way?
0: Uh, Really, I started. I started farming with an old farmer back in '76. That uh, he he used no no herbicides in his fields, and he farmed about two thousand acres. So he's he's the one that taught me how to how to how to farm without without all the herbicides and pesticides.
1: Did you say that again? Was it two thousand acres this guy was farming?
0: yeah wow yeah yeah yeah. The, yeah the cattle uh cattle and uh dairy dairy ranch yeah and uh and like i say but all the all the corn and everything i mean we we never once put down the chemical to kill the grass
1: wow awesome that's i mean that's yeah. great and i can, a lot of people say well this this type of thing works well on a small operation you know five acres 20 acres something like that but how are yeah. you going to do this large scale and there's there's Inclusive proof, and I think it has a lot to do with making animals part of the system. Animal,
0: animals are a huge part of the system. Um, you know, like I said, everything can work together in it. The, uh, in fact, a good, good, healthy ecosystem. I mean, it can even be a mini ecosystem, like a small farm, it has to have at least ten different varieties of animals on it. You know, worms, frogs, spiders, birds, you know, birds, you know, just 10 different things, and you have a good, healthy ecosystem. Anything less than that, it needs help.
1: I think one, I think you mentioned a real key indicator of our soil quality, too. If you turn a couple shovels full of uh, dirt over and you don't see a single worm, you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, uh, and there again, a lot of people don't realize the, uh, a lot of the commercial fertilizers are petroleum-based, and one application of, of a petroleum based fertilizer will either kill or drive the worms away for up to seven years.
1: Seven years. That's a, that's a yeah. long price to pay. And yeah. I mean, talk about fertility. I mean, a worm is nothing but a fertility machine.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, their, their whole purpose is to get plant matter, reduce it down small enough so the, so the other plants can absorb it uh, more readily. It, it, what are
1: some of the other things we talk about sorghum? What are some of the other things that you grow on your farm? I mean, personally, you send for market.
0: Uh, actually, I don't really send anything to market. Uh, okay. I have, pe- I have people who comes out and picks, and uh, and we also uh, this is going to be our first year. We're going to have a farm to table uh, on September the fifteenth, uh, where the uh, we'll have chefs come out and cook the heirloom varieties and uh, and serve it to, you know to the guests. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, but the, uh, like the corn I grow, uh, it's uh, called Country Gentleman corn, which is a, uh, which is a sweet corn. It's a white, and it doesn't have straight rows. It has real random mottled rows in it. Um the, uh, red ripper peas. I've got the, uh, speckled purple hulls, heirloom broccolis. You know, you know like I say, you know, all, all my produce is, is all, uh, heirloom.
1: The uh the country gentleman that's a real good keeper, isn't it?
0: The what?
1: It's a good keeper. It stores well, doesn't it?
0: The country gentleman? Yeah. Yeah, well, it uh the the only thing about it is mo most, most heirloom variety of corns they don't have a long shelf life. Uh okay. in about three days they've lost their uh sugar content, turned to starch. Well the where the hybrid varieties has a shelf life of up to two weeks. Okay. You know, that's why you don't that's why you don't see a lot of uh Well, any heirloom varieties in the store because it just doesn't have the uh, shelf life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, you're talking about doing, like, having people come pick their own and doing, Mm -hmm. like, farm-to-table. I mean, that's what I call, like, value-add, and I think that's what a lot of small farms need to start doing if they want to make it is instead of just, you know, you pick your stuff, you send it to some wholesaler who sends it to some distributor who sends it to some store – not only are you selling direct, but you're 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 doing something to enhance value like selling the experience of coming to pick your own food, which actually is avoiding the cost of labor, uh or actually preparing the food and selling it at a premium because it's prepared for the person and they get the experience of being there.
0: That's true. And and plus, I mean if you factor in that 24 hours after picking produce, it loses 50% of its uh, of its uh, nutrition. So just just think about how long What you've been buying from the store has been picked, transported, sat on shelves. It doesn't have much food value left.
1: Not to mention, it probably came from Argentina or Chile or God knows where in many cases. Yeah, that's true. I I think the number one importer of uh, importation country for garlic right now is China, which is kind of crazy because garlic's not hard to grow. (laughs)
0: No, it's not, it's not, and, you know, and uh, like I said, I've never really grown a lot of garlic, but uh, I have a friend who does, and I really didn't realize all the different varieties of garlics with all the different flavors that are out there.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm a big fan of, like, the hardnecks, the purples, and the reds, because they're kind of hot and all, but, yeah, there's every, I mean, saying you don't like garlic to me is like saying you don't like food, you just ain't found the right kind yet.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Or <laughs> saying you don't like beer, you just ain't found the right kind yet. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: You run workshops too though for people, don't you? Can you tell us about some of the things you do uh do like that?
0: Yeah, we have workshops. Uh we have one coming up. I can't remember the date. I think I think it's not this this weekend but the following weekend. It's gonna be soap making. Uh it's not gonna be the live soap this time, but it's gonna be making laundry detergent, dishwashing liquid and uh and uh, dishwashing liquid, and uh, that's going to be, that's biodegradable. But the good thing about the laundry detergent that I show is you it averages about $2 a gallon is what is what you average making it.
1: And that stuff's expensive. I just read an article about people using it as a barter implement on the streets, you know, using Tide, because it's said that got
0: expensive. Yeah, you know, but there's a, this, this detergent that we that uh, I give the recipe out to make, I mean, I've, I've had pants that you know had grease stains for years in them, one, and one wash with it, it took them right out. Wow, wow, yeah. But uh, but we also do live you know live soap making. You know, my wife teaches how to do it. Uh, early spring, uh, my most favorite workshop we called Eat the Yard. Where? Tell we us ate, about uh, that because
1: you actually found yeah. out about our show at one of those, didn't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, one of the people uh, that was out there participating told me about your show. But uh, what, what I do is I take people out and show them easily identifiable plants that they can eat and feed their family with in case of natural disaster such as an earthquake. Because if you think about it, I mean, count the bridges between you and the grocery store. I mean, a major earthquake and you're stranded.
1: Well, not to mention count the number of bridges between the place the food comes from and the grocery store. Even if
0: yeah. your area is okay, what
1: if they can't get the food to you? Because we don't we don't do enough business with local growers anymore at all. I mean, that's that is a a critical concern for the global food supply is that it's become so centralized and so so distribution centric that if you put a hick – I mean, a trucker strike and people are going hungry, it's that simple. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's true. And you know, a lot of people don't realize that they have a vast gro- grocery store and pharmacy in their backyard. What are
1: some of the more common plants that you usually make sure you definitely teach people to identify? Uh, I know that it's, it's, you know, there might be different plants in California than Pennsylvania or whatever, but there are some real common stuff that, that everybody should know.
0: Common things, uh, like I say, a good thing in the south is a uh, poke salad. You know that, you know, it, that's, you know, a lot, a lot of Southerners already know it. But I teach uh the dock, the plantain, the uh the dandelion root, well and the dandelion leaves the dandelion leaves are great in salads and so is the blooms. But the dandelion root also helps in uh helps your pancreas uh create inulin that helps process the blood sugars. So it actually does help ward off against diabetes. Oh wow. So, yeah. The uh the what what else The the uh I teach how you, know, how you how you make, uh, like say, identify medical plants such as mullein, uh, sweet gum. You know how to use it. Fall, I teach about the uh, rose hips and the uh, staghorn sumac. You know, so you can really stock up on vitamin C, and yeah, you know, and how to store all this stuff for later use.
1: Now the sumac is an awesome plant. Um, I know a lot of people get it confused with the poison sumac that's white berries and they hang down versus red berries and stick up. And when well, yeah. I grew up as a kid, like everybody was afraid of it, and I learned about it later in life. And it's it's basically a pink lemonade tree.
0: Exactly, exactly. In fact, uh, one of the chefs that's doing the uh, farm to table says he makes a, uh, a sumac infused chicken. Oh wow, that that is absolutely wonderful. So I'm you know I'm, I'm actually I'm waiting for the sumac to get ready so I can try that.
1: Yeah, I'm going to to try that. I've never done chicken with it. I've done fish because lemon, you know, that lemon tart flavor in the fish just, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy thing to put together. I'm going to have to try chicken. sumac yeah. chicken. I keep threatening to make a sumac wheat beer, but I never do it. It would probably be outstanding if I get off my butt and do it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Have you, have you seen the uh, uh, sorghum beer that's on the market now? Yeah, I can't
1: think of the name of the one that I bought. It was like had a picture of a bridge on it or something like that, and it was really a good beer.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good, and, uh, and, now, and now they're making uh, sorghum whiskeys.
1: Oh wow! Well,
0: yeah. if I grow me I mean,
1: enough sorghum, maybe I'll make some from scratch. I'm, I'm a home brewer, and I, I really enjoy doing that. Um, yeah. And I think it's a good uh, it's a good uh, crisis skill to have too. The guy that can bring the brew can usually get some work done.
0: There you go. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get set up with the uh, local law enforcement and uh, and the tobacco and firearms people to where I can actually start distilling. There at the house, not for uh, c- consumption, but for an alternate fuel source, because you know you can make the alcohol from the uh, from the sorry, for an alternate fuel source.
1: Yeah, you can get a permit. It's pretty easy to do if, as long as it's for fuel, and as long as it's for under like fifty-five hundred gallons a a year or something. I'll send you a link on that. I have a guy on oh, the yeah. show often that has uh, that he actually has a little. Uh, electric still to make it. It looks like a coffee maker and sits on your porch. It's not for mass production, but it's for learning. Yeah. But he, had, he has all the info on getting that permit. That's, that's a great idea because even if uh, you know how to do it, so I'm not saying anybody should do it for anything other than fuel production, but having yeah. a knowledge of something is a good thing to have.
0: Well, I mean, not just that. I mean, the uh, one of the main uh, purposes of the, the whole distilling back in the old days is you could, you could use it for, uh, preserving your fruits, vegetables, and, uh, making your, uh, tinctures out of, out of the alcohol. It Absolutely. And get, it wasn't for drinking and getting drunk. It was for preserving.
1: Absolutely. Um, one of my, uh, one of my folks that's been on the show a few times with me, Marjorie, uh, has a farm down south of Austin, Texas, and she just sent me a tincture made with alcohol and wild oat. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good stuff, you know, for, yep. uh, wild oats are great medicinal
0: yeah you know think it i mean every every illness has a cure in nature you know it's just up to us to find out what it is so um what,
1: what i mean what kind of drove you to live this way because i mean the way you're living today is not very different from the way most people lived 50 60 years ago in this country even uh maybe you go back a couple more years to where it was even more common but today People doing what you're doing is, is, is not very common. I think it's kind of circling back, but you've been doing this since the seventies. So what drove you to do this?
0: It just, I'm not going to say I'm smarter than the average person, but I mean, it didn't take a whole lot to figure out that whatever you sprayed on a plant or you fed the plant was absorbed in it and you're eating it. And I just did not like the idea of all these chemicals going into my body. You know, even yeah. at an you know, even at an early age, you know, I, just, you know I, I I just knew that what you sprayed on it, you were eating it, and I, you know, and I wasn't going to do it. it. What bugs
1: me today with the like the genetically modified stuff, and uh-huh. I mean, is not just that they're genetically modifying it; it's what they're genetically modifying it to do. So now we genetically modify the soybean. So that we can spray uh glyphosphate or roundup on the soybean and they spray it twice during yeah. its cultivation and it what used to be used in 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 rows and or you know, like wood li- lines and stuff to keep weeds back is now literally being drenched into the soil the plant's growing in, and to me you just you can't wash that off it's not like. You know, it's not like something no. like, uh, you know, like seven dust or something, which is still toxic and I wouldn't want it nowhere near my food, but this yeah. is literally becoming part of the biochemistry of the plant now.
0: Well, what a good example of this was the, uh, the Memphis Beekeepers Association tested the uh, beeswax in this year's, uh, bee production. Yeah. And if you want to know anything environmentally going on, you test beeswax and it tested the a duress band into the beeswax and it has not even been on the market in 10 years so it's still being leached into the plants that's that is
1: you know and that, that has to you have to wonder what we're going to be looking at even if we stopped everything that we're doing now which we're not going to 10 20 years from now how much of this stuff is going to have this lingering you know super long half-life things like uh I can't think of the one, but there's a certain biocide out there, uh, persistent, you know, herbicide that has a half life of seven to fourteen years, and it's it's starting yeah. to work its way into. P- People are buying compost to do the organic thing, and then they're having, you know, poor performance from planting in compost where they should have great performance, and it turns out that objects that were composted have these residual herbicides in them.
0: Yeah, well, I, I tell everybody that it's, you know, it's very much like the do by date on on milk. That's not the date that's going to expire. That's the guaranteed it's going to last that long date mm. is what it is. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was a product called Pinna that you would spray on wood and put around foundations of a house, and it was guaranteed for, life, for a lifetime that you would never have termites. Mm. Now, that's not your lifetime, which may be 75 years. That's the life of the house. That could be two to 300 years. <laughs> Now that's guaranteed. It's going to be that toxic for that long, you know. So you can just imagine how how much of that is leaching into the has leached into the soils, and it's going to linger for probably thousands of years.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it it, it is very very tragic. And to me, it's 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 really all related to this. Like everything's mechanized, everything's a monocrop, everything's you know designed for. Maximum output at all cost, and we got into this this situation where, like, yeah, I mean, you might have to worry about a cornworm, but if you plant ten thousand acres of nothing but corn, you're ringing the dinner bell.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people say, no, you got to you got to have the chemicals, you know, to have the uh, you know for the mass production and stuff. But as far as economically. When you cut out your herbicides, you cut out your pesticides and you go organic, you're actually increasing your bottom dollar
1: well, and you're cutting you your seed be- costs too because you're not buying g m o seed every year,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you may not be making as much up front, but if you factor in how much you save, you know it you're you're actually making more
1: well plus the, uh, the produce sells at a premium,
0: yeah, yeah, now. Now, me, my produce, I, I really do it on a uh, pay, pay as you can afford basis, you know, because that's not my primary crop, and I want to have, uh, you know, help people out, you know, sure. these times. But uh, when I put up a uh, when I do a presentation, I put up my finances for last year. We actually grossed four hundred four thousand five hundred dollars last year. That's all we made on the farm. But when you factor in what I saved on the on the seed, what I saved on herbicides, what I save on groceries, you know, and plus my medical for my age, I'm fifty three years old and I don't have a health issue one. You know, so when you factor in what a normal fifty three year old pays for health care, I've actually made thirty five thousand dollars last year off the farm just off that four thousand dollars.
1: And you're really not doing this from a a high-scale production. I'm I'm a farmer to make a living as a a produce seller operation. Oh, no. It's more part of your life, and you run these workshops and things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, this this, this is my life. I grow things. I want to eat, and then anybody who's wanting to learn it, I teach, you know, that's just like my produce. I mean, I put up everything I need, anything left up, you know, everything that I don't put up is sold. So, you know, it benefits everybody.
1: Absolutely. And, um, I mean, one of the things that I think is very important for people to understand today is that not every farm has to be a farm that's designed to be a full-time living. It can be something that supports a family, uh, in more than one way, like you're talking about with being able to feed yourself, being able, and I think building community is probably a huge thing as well because every time you do these things for your teaching and training, you're developing kind of a network of, of, of connections as well.
0: That's true. I mean, I, I have gained some great friends and I, I love the, uh, the individuals who come out who's, who's used to putting down the uh, chemical fertilizers and spraying and see the transition going to organic because they see the benefits of it now.
1: Yeah, well, that that makes absolute perfect sense. Um, And I think a a part of it is just being able to see it and know that it really does work. It's not just some idea in Mother Earth News magazine or something like that for a bunch of hippies. Here you can see it actually happening.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and there again, I mean, uh, a good selling point for organics is, you know, I I don't stay on the farm 100% of the time uh like right now i'm i am i am out on job doing remodeling, and i'm during my lunch break I'm talking with you okay you know, so so it's not it's not that hard once once you get your farm set up on the organics it's not that hard to maintain it
1: sure because it's operating like a natural system,
0: yeah, yeah you know, yeah it takes a little getting used to you know but but once you get into the rhythm of it. You know, that's like uh, people say, well, I bet it takes you forever to feed your animals, you know, because i got chickens, hogs, horses, you know, goats and all that. No, it takes me about 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the afternoon. That's all it takes. You know, I mean, things once you get things set up, things pretty much take care of themselves.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I think that one of the things people need to consider is also like – the on the livestock thing, how can you make the land provide for the livestock as much as possible so you're not always hauling stuff in for them?
0: Yeah, well, like I say, on for the amount of animals I have, I don't, I actually don't have enough land sure. to provide for them. But uh through the people I've met through through the years, I actually have people who who donate the land. You know, like I've got a guy who's got 27 acres that he doesn't even farm, so he. I go over and cut the hay off of it, and uh, for my animals, you know, there there's people are willing to help the because, you know, they are, and and we've turned. I mean, they know they can come out and just get basically anything they want off the farm anytime they want it. See, and I think that's
1: something we've lost in America. You know, that, that people had that attitude of, you know, I'll help you, you help me. It's kind of uns- it's not like. It's not like a like a business deal where it's like, Okay, well I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's just kind of understood that of course I'll help you out, you're my neighbor and of course you'd help me out because I'm your neighbor.
0: Yeah. Well, a very good example, uh Memorial Day, my son and I was pitching hay and uh which you know we 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 had about ten acres. We were raking up with pitchforks and pitching up on the trailer loose. Well, some of some of the families who Frequence, the farm, found out we was in the hay field. They brought trailers, rakes, and pitchforks and helped us get the hay out of the field. You know, so it's not, its not. you know, it, 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 really, it really brings a tear to the eye when you see that things are finally clicking and we're going back to those ways of neighbor helping neighbor.
1: You know, I'm more optimistic today than I was four years ago when I started this show. And I don't know if it's just because I'm more exposed to it now than I was in the past. Um, I've always practiced it myself, but it seems to me like more and more people are snapping to this, getting involved, wanting to learn these skills. Have you seen, let's say, over the last three or four years, an uptick in the number of people wanting to come out and see your farm, wanting to come to your workshops and things like that? Are you seeing kind of that revival, I guess you would say?
0: I do, you know, and, and plus, too, I also see a, uh, See, it depends a lot on the economy, also, because uh you know, because you know, we're we're not right on a major highway, real close to the city. So, I mean, it, it's got to be somebody wanting to uh to take a trip out to the country and spend spend some time out there. You know, even though a lot of our workshops are are free, well, basically free. You know, I mean, it's, it's still just that extra expense that a lot of people still can't afford a lot.
1: Yeah, and I think that sort kind of kinda cut in both ways. Like one, it's holding people back from buying stuff or getting land or going out and taking classes on some levels, but on the other level, it is really uh it it's really working in in in, in the right direction with getting people to actually see the need for doing it in the first place.
0: Yeah. Truly. The uh you know, and you know, and get, getting new people out is uh is of course our goal our our final goal for the farm is to be able to start offering free school tours out on the farm is where our final goal is so that we can start teaching kids, you know, at an early age how to be self-sustaining and not being dependent on just going to the grocery store.
1: Yeah, and I think the young people are really the ones that are snapping to this, you know, people younger than myself. I'm, you know, in my 40s now, um mm-hmm. but – I, like when I went, I did to a workshop at, up in Montana with Seth Holzer and he came over and taught about hoo culture and dam building, stuff like that. And there were a ton of what I would call kids. You know, they're young adults, but I would call them kids there. And mm-hmm. they weren't just there to learn. They were excited. They were planning. They, and, and they went out and found a local guy that was, uh, kind of getting about to be about his 80s, and he had been you know, farming like a little acre with all kinds of fruit and, and stuff like that, and he donated yeah. like a nursery's worth of stuff, and this dude was completely jazzed to have these, you know, nineteen twenty twenty two 22-year-old kids uh, showing up at his place, wanting to know how he did it, that he gave all this stuff to help kind of the showcase farm get off the ground. It was uh, pretty amazing to see that.
0: Yeah, you know, you know and... and in years past, you know, it's all, you know, this all for me attitude. But here lately, people are realizing it, it can't be all for me. It can't. It can't. Not, not if everybody's going to survive together. You know, and I think I'm
1: seeing more and more people snap to that, like out of the audience too, because the the big email and question I would get, or the calling question I would get uh, in the first couple of years, how much land do I need to provide everything for myself and my family? And now I get more along the lines of how much land do I need so that we can provide part of what we need and be part of a community, that type of thing, where people are realizing you're not going to do it by yourself. And and not everybody's going to do everything. Some people are going to really focus on poultry. Some people are really going to focus on pork. Some are really going to focus more on produce. But if everybody's doing a little bit, and like you're talking about bartering for hay, you can come over, pick all the broccoli and get eggs and do whatever, and I'll take the hay and feed it to my goats, But when that kind of community starts to build, then you get local resiliency.
0: Yes, you know that's true. You know because some, you know, some of my friends, I mean, they they excel in growing some things that you know I don't. Whereas you know I'm able. Well, I'm I'm the I'm the sorghum guy, of course. So Mm -hmm. I mean I mean it all it all works out. It's not like okay I'm going to do this and and you help me out. It's it's just a natural. Okay, I need this here. It's yours. Sure. You know, and like and likewise, you know, whenever whenever they need something, I've got, you know, they they just know they can just come come to me.
1: Yeah. So if people want to learn more, you know, your farm's in Tennessee. Uh, yeah. And if people want to come out there, you've got a website set up where they can learn more about your farm and your workshops and see your calendar, schedule of events, all that stuff, right?
0: Yeah, I've got a website that's oleawakersfarm dot com. And I'm also on Facebook under Oleo Acres.
1: Okay. And I'll make sure I post, uh, I'll post links for that, uh, in the show notes with today's show so people can find you. And I did just on your site while you were talking, went by and saw that you actually sell, uh, your sorghum syrup. And, uh, and I ordered one of your four packs from you while we were talking.
0: (laughs) Hi, great. But the, uh, in fact, uh, September 29th and 30th, uh, we will have Sorghum Festival on the farm. Awesome. Yeah, and uh and we we're constantly looking for people who do handcrafted items items the old way, you know, like basket weaving, broom making, blacksmithing, anything like that. You know, so that we can show and demonstrate to people how to do things.
1: Awesome. Well, if anybody's near the Tennessee area and would like to be part of that, make sure you get a hold of Tim. Again, I'll put links to his website, his Facebook profile and all that good stuff in today's show notes and Hey Tim, it's really awesome to hear some from somebody who's actually doing this stuff. So thanks for joining us today, and thanks for all the work you're doing to help well, people learn, to rekindle knowledge, uh, and to get people kind of lit up with a fire and an understanding of taking care of yourself, looking out for your community, and, and getting other people involved because we need more people doing it. So thanks for being on the air, and thanks for the work you're doing.
0: Thank you for having me. And anytime you'd like to, uh, me to be a part of it, you just give me a call. Will do,
1: man. And, folks, with that, today this has been Jack Spierko along with Tim Ammons helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's in our food these days. You know it's
0: on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat.
1: I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I could do. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.